Am I coming through? If I put it in front of me? <laughs> well, let's start with prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for the chance to come together in your name, to to be surrounded by a group of people that love you and that uh, love each other. I thank you for the chance to come up here and to, to speak to help that what people hear is your word and your spirit speaking and not get distracted by me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we all know that God has a lot of rules about sex, right? There, He says, you know, there's a certain... Certain people that you're allowed to have sex with, right? One per each. <laughs> I'm not saying a group. <laughs> and he has rules about how you do it, when you do it. Um, in the Sermon on the, Mount, on the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we're not supposed to lust over anyone else. So, why is it that it's so hard for us to hold to those rules? Why is it the pornography is such a huge deal in the church. I mean, if I, I'm assuming that adultery is not a huge issue here. Right? Here in this community, it certainly is in other places. But, but pornography is. And I think the reason that that exists, the reason that we struggle with that, is because at a basic level, we don't think like God about sex. We think like the world does. Because the world says that if someone's willing to have sex with you, you should be entitled to have sex with them. And if someone takes off their clothes, you should be allowed to look at them. And we, so often we start thinking that way. And then we try to put God's laws over the top. And we somehow try to shove down that basic belief. But it's like sitting on a beach ball in the in the pool, right? I mean, you try to shove it down, you try to balance, you try to hold it underwater, but it keeps popping up. And so I think that in this area, and in a lot of areas, we don't think like God, we think like the world does. And so, as I'm introducing truth, the basic idea that I'm hoping you'll come away from this is the idea that God wants you to change how you think. That there's, there's a epic moral battle ongoing that's not just involving what you do, but it's involving how you approach things and how you think about them in the first place. So we're going to start here in Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18. It says... The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And the basic idea I want, I want you to get from that passage is that Paul says that what may be known about God is obvious. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to read the Bible in order to know what God is saying. This is a theological concept that's called general revelation. It basically means everyone knows. According to what the Bible is saying here, there is no such thing as an atheist. There's just a theist who's in a denial, right? Because we look at the world and we know that God is out there and we say, I don't want that. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to hear it. And so I'm going to try to push it down. It's the beach ball again, but now turned upside down because everybody knows at their core that God exists. And I was thinking about this. and I was thinking it's a lot like a repressive government. If you remember the Arab Spring a couple of years ago, there were all of these uh, protest movements and uprisings happening throughout the, the Middle East. And these people were getting together usually over social media. So they were exchanging information about here's what's going on and here's where we're going to meet and here's what the government's done and well, here's a video of that they just shot somebody in the street and they share the information. Well, what does an oppress a repressive government do? It shuts down social media because it doesn't want the truth to get out. In some of the more subtle governments, like in China, they won't shut down media altogether, they'll just filter it very carefully. So if you go to China and you go to Google, you get a different version of Google than you do out here. And if you search for, I believe it's June 4th, in the China version of Google, nothing interesting shows up. Well, that's because the Tiananmen Square massacre happened on June 4th. And the China version of Google doesn't allow you to get that information. I think that's what we are doing all the time. There are some people who are completely attempting to shut God out. So God's sitting there with his like, he's probably using an Android, right? He wouldn't use an iPhone. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but he's sitting, there, he's sitting there with his smartphone and he's tweeting, hey, I exist. I love you. Sin is a big deal. Something needs to be done about this. Some people have completely blocked him out altogether. And some people, like I would say all of us, have devised very clever filters. So when God tweets, I exist, we'll say, okay, we're, we're listening to God. We hear his truth. But then he says something else, something that's not something we really want to hear. And it's automatically filtered out. We don't even hear it. It doesn't exist. I think that's what all of us are doing at some level. Now let's go forward and we'll talk We'll get to that. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served and created things rather than the creator. Oh, wait a minute. That's 23. No, that's 25. And 32. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
And the reason I brought these up is because I wanted to make it clear here that what you believe is not a harmless abstract concept. What you claim to be true is not something that you can separate from obedience. When you go through chapter 1, there's this continual downward spiral of God speaks truth, mankind represses it, and as a, as a consequence, mankind goes further down into sin. So you, you can't say, well, I obey God, but I didn't really want to listen to that part. You can't separate the two. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk about here was that if you read just as far as we have, you could read this as a very us versus them sort of passage, right? You could say, well, you know, if you're part of the church or you, you know, you've prayed a prayer or you whatever, then you're a good person. And it's them who repress the truth. Let's go to chapter two. You, therefore, have no excuse who, chat, who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So Paul says, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the whole world, but I'm also talking about us because we do the same thing. We're going to filter out God just like everybody else does. There's also, I love there, verse 4. Do you realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I don't want you to listen to what I'm saying here and think that I'm whapping you over the head with a very large mallet. Because I'm going to say that this stuff is really important because it is. But that doesn't mean that God is right on the edge of his seat about to annihilate you because you're sinning. God loves to show mercy. He loves to show kindness. He loves to show patience. He has a direction that he wants you to go. But he's also aware that it's going to take you a long time to get there. Now, I wanted to jump backwards a little bit here for one more point. I wanted to emphasize the usness of here. Because I, I wondered, you know, maybe the Romans were a screwed up church. You know, the Corinthians are notorious for that, right? They're notorious as being the church you don't want to be. But what were the Romans? Verse 8. I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He says, your faith is being reported all over the world. Paul has never been to Rome, but he's heard about them. So these are the good people. So everyone is doing this. Everyone is suppressing the truth. It's not the people out there. It's not the young Christians who have a lot to learn. It's the oldest, most mature of us everywhere. So we're going to jump it. Oh. Okay. 
So this is what we've just learned here. We first learned that the truth about God is obvious. We've learned that we repress it and that it's true of everyone and not just them, not the people outside. We're jumping ahead to Romans 12. We love this passage. I found another excuse to preach on it. Probably people could say it from memory. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So I wanted to focus on verse two. Verse one is a lot about what you do. And verse two is about how you think. And there's three key phrases there. Do not conform to the pattern of the world. This is where we all start, right? We all start there in our lives, but also in each of the individual subjects that God is trying to teach us about. We start by being conformed to the pattern of this world. So in concept of when we're talking about sex, we start by thinking the way the world thinks. But God says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we have to change how we think. And that is how we're going to reach the moral goal of being able to act the way God wants us to act. And the last phrase is where I'm really going to focus on this concept of testing and approving what God's will is. And I think... That testing and approving are two different things. Testing is, first, that you know what God's will is. So, when you are confronted with a situation and you want to know, how should I act? Well, you you can go and you can look at what you've learned about God and you can say, okay, this is how God wants me to act. If you're confronted with an idea, you're talking to a friend or you're reading something on the internet, you're reading a book, and somebody says, here's what I think is true. Well, you can test it by comparing it to what you know about God's will. Approve is the more difficult one. Approve is the deeper one. Because approve means you agree with it. You think that God's right and it's a good idea. And it's possible and it's very necessary sometimes to just simply say, I don't approve yet, but I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to obey. But where we want to get eventually is to actually approve, to think the way he does. If we approve of God's will, if we think the way he does, then we will know his laws, but we won't be using his laws to force down what's going on inside of us. We will instead be acting naturally the way God wants us to act. So how do you test what God's will is? I've got four categories up here. If you talk to other people, there's different combinations. And there's probably things that I haven't listed there. But the first and the most important category of how you test God's will is Scripture. You go and you read your Bible. You study it. You memorize it. You meditate on it. And Scripture is absolutely critical because... For two reasons. First of all, 
it comes directly from God. It's not some human's approach to it. It it is God saying this is what's going on. And the second is that because it's written down, it's a lot easier to understand than some of the other ways that he speaks. So we should be we should be studying. We should be spending time memorizing it. And what you want eventually is to have spent so much time in the Bible that it just becomes part of how you think the words and the phrases from the Bible. They start coming out because it's what you quote it naturally because it's inside your head. Now, theology is the second way that you can test God's will. And by theology here, I'm using that as a sweeping category for anything that's written down, but isn't the Bible. So that can be that can be a theological treatise. It can be a creed like the Apostles Creed that we recite every other week. We uh, sing a song called Creed that's based on the Nicene Creed. There's several others that are worth studying. It could be a confession. It could be a blog post. It's someone who wrote down an idea and say, says, this is what I think is true about God. Now, theology is valuable because it can take the things that God has revealed otherwise, like through the Bible that might be a little hard to dig out, a little hard to understand, and it can put it right in an encapsulated form. Rod comes from the CRC, and they have three confessions that they hold to. And each of those confessions is, you know, a few dozen pages. You can read those few dozen pages, and you get a lot of very dense theological understanding. And you can get all of that out of the Bible, but then you've got 2,000 pages that you have to study through and extract. Now, the problem with theology is because it doesn't come straight from God, it can be wrong, right? I mean, we're, we're sitting here and we're discussing the fact that every one of us has things that we believe that don't line up with God. Well, that includes every person who's ever tried to sit down and write a creed or a confession or a theology book. So anytime that you're studying this human construction, you have to filter it through the Bible. But it's still very useful to at least to help you understand where you're going to look. Community is critical. We all here are surrounded by a large number of people who really love God. And most of us have friends and family outside this community who love God. And if we want to know what God has to say to us, one of the really effective ways to do it is to go to somebody you trust, somebody whose walk you respect and say, what do you think? Right. It's the same. It's the same thing as theology that it could be flawed. They could be talking about their hang ups, but it's still worth asking. And the last thing is listening. Listening is the hardest one to trust because you're listening inside your own head, inside your own spirit to see what God's saying. It's very easy to fool yourself about that, right? I mean, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, my first girlfriend, she dumped me. I didn't want her to. I was just convinced that we were meant to be together. And so I had this feeling inside my self 
and said, oh, I guess that's God talking. And so I declared in front of the church and called down all the curses on me from Old Testament prophets. I said, this is what God said. I'm supposed to wait for this girl. It wasn't God talking. And my community came around me and said, Russ, this isn't God talking. I didn't listen to them. Because I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe. And there was a very long and painful and scary process when God finally pulled me out of that. So listening is fraught with danger, but it's also irreplaceable. If you're sitting over dinner tonight and you're talking to somebody and they're pouring out their heart about what's going on with their life, And you want to know what God has to say to them. It's not going to work very well for you to say, okay, put that on hold. I'm going to go and I'm going to spend an hour flipping through my Bible and trying to figure out what God has to say to you. I mean, that might be a very good thing to do and come back next week. But if you want to speak today, that's not going to happen. You can't call somebody up on the phone and say, "Um, all right, so I got this person I'm talking to. What do you think I should be saying? What you have to do is you have to listen to God speaking inside your own head so that you can speak it there in the moment. So, listening is critical, but listening is hard. And we're going to move on here. We're going to talk about approving. And if you noticed on the previous slide, the previous slide was a list of things you can do so that you can test God's will. I don't have one of those for approving because approving is about what you believe and what you assent to down deep in your core. There's not a list of steps that I can give you where you come to do that. Now, as you as you follow God longer, as you get to know him better, you're going to find that your heart is changing and you're coming to approve of God in ways that you didn't previously. But what our experience largely is going to be in so many ways is that we don't approve and we don't like what God is saying. So the question that, that we have here is, what do we do? I gave three, three reasons why approving of God's will might be hard. And that uh, each of them, I've got a, a story from the Old Testament about somebody who struggled with this. The first thing is that we may just flat out not like what God is saying. We may not want it to be true. We may resist it. And the canonical example of that, of course, is Jonah, right? So uh, Jonah's a prophet in the Old Testament. God says to him, go to Nineveh, preach against it. Their sin has become so massive that I'm going to destroy the city. Now, Jonah was listening. I don't know how that all worked for him as a prophet, but he knew what God's will was. The problem was that he didn't like it because he knew God well enough that he knew that if God was sending a prophet to warn them of impending destruction, it was probably because God was going to try to save them. Jonah didn't want that. The Ninevites were evil. I mean, not just Jonah's opinion. They were evil. And Jonah wanted them to burn. And so, when Jonah is confronted with God's will, which is go east to Nineveh, Jonah goes west on a boat. It doesn't work, obviously, right? 
God sends a storm. They throw him into the water. The fish comes and vomits him out. And he says, okay, well, right. I'm not going to be able to fight this. So he finally goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And it just so happens that Jonah is the greatest evangelist in the history of the world. 120,000 converts in three days. And this should be like something that's like really, really awesome. God has saved one of the world's largest cities. Well, instead, Jonah goes up on a hill where he can watch the city. And he's like, well, maybe God will destroy them anyway. One can hope. So Jonah's not a very good example of following God. But the, the second two are. Sometimes we may not like, we, sometimes we may not approve of God's will because it's painful to us. We live in a community that's full of broken people. People have been abused. People are disabled. People have chronic illnesses. We have psychiatric problems and physical problems and genetic problems. And it's just, it's painful. And we want to be out of it. We want to be saved from it. Sometimes God says yes and sometimes he says no. In the story of David and Bathsheba, we have an example of that. Do you remember the story of David and Bathsheba, right? They have an affair. She gets pregnant. David calls the, the husband over. He was, he's a soldier in the army, and David brings him back to the capital, theoretically, to report on how the battle's going. What he's really trying to do is he's trying to get him home so that he can have sex with his wife, and then everything will be covered up. Well, Uriah is pretty serious about being a soldier, and he says, well, I'm not going to have sex so long as my buddies are still in the field. So David instead arranges it to have him killed. He marries Bathsheba. The baby's born. And even though David's tried to cover it up, everybody knows. Everybody knows what's happened. So the prophet Gad comes to David and confronts him with it. Now David has done something awful, so I hesitate to call him a good man, but he really did love the Lord in some amazing ways. And so when he's confronted with the plain reality of his sin. He repents. He asks for forgiveness. And God says, well, I've taken away your sin. But the baby's still going to die. That is the consequence that's going to happen. This is God's revealed will through the prophet. Now, at that point, David has the ability to test what God's will is. He knows it. But he doesn't approve of it. He wants. He hopes he can avoid it, right? So he spends seven days on his hands and knees praying and begging God, God, please save this son. And at the end of the seven days, God follows through on what he promised. The baby dies. And what David does is remarkable because he's been consumed with this praying, hoping that the baby will be saved. And the attendants around him are like, you know, if that's how he was when the baby was sick, how are we ever going to tell him that he's dead? Well, David figures out what's happened and he gets up and he washes his face and he goes to the temple and worships. And David didn't 
like what God did. It was painful to him and he wished it didn't happen. But he obeyed God and he trusted God. He's, he said, okay, you've done this. This is not going to be a breach in my relationship with you. I'm going to go and I'm going to worship. Now, the third thing that can happen is that things are confusing. Sometimes the reason we don't approve of God's will is because we don't know it yet. You have the example there of Abraham and Isaac. God says to Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son. Well, God knows that that's not actually what's going to happen. But Abraham doesn't know that yet. And just like David, Abraham doesn't approve of what's happening. I mean, this is the son of promise. Not, you know, It's his son. It's also the son of promise through which everyone's going to be blessed. But Abraham obeys. So they go all the way through that, that whole process. And then eventually, right at the last minute, God's, God saves Isaac. And so Abraham didn't approve of God because he didn't, he didn't approve of God's will because he didn't yet know what it fully was. You know, the thing that's common between, those, between David and Abraham is that they obeyed God. When Jonah was confronted with something he didn't approve of, he did his best to beat God. He disobeyed and he ran away. But David and Abraham, although they have their desires and they have their preferences and they want God to do a certain thing, they move forward in following God regardless. And the reason that they can do that is because they trust God. See, even if you don't approve of some particular part of God's revealed will. What you can approve of is who God is. I have an example of that because I really struggle with the concept of hell. Right? If we read the Bible and we read it as a plain meaning, it says people are going to hell. And I have some extra special problems with that because I'm a Calvinist and you know the whole irresistible grace thing. I don't like the idea that God would allow people to go to hell. And so I can test what the Bible says about it, but I can't wholeheartedly say that I approve of it. But what I can say is that I trust who God is. So I have this question in my head. I wonder what's going to happen when we all get up to heaven. Maybe we'll go up to heaven. And I'll find out like Abraham that I didn't know everything. Maybe we'll get up to heaven and God will say, yeah, it sure looked like there were people going to hell, but hell is actually empty. You know, wahoo, you don't have to worry about that particular problem. But, it, but if I'm honest with you and if I'm honest with myself, that's not the likely outcome. The likely outcome is that the plain reading of the Bible is true. And there are going to be people who are going to burn. Well, what I can tell you is that although I don't like that idea, I trust God more than I trust my own wisdom. I trust God more than I trust my own ability to judge what ought to be. 
And so if I go up to heaven and I find that there are people who have gone to hell, what I believe is that God, when he takes all of the sin out of my life, all the places that I've been repressing him, when he gives me the insight that I need to see the world as it actually is, when all of that cloudiness has been removed, then I'll say, yeah, God, now I agree. Now I approve. And I can't tell you today which of those two outcomes are going to happen. But I trust that one of them will because I trust who God is. So we're going to be going through truth for the next few weeks. And there's going to be people preaching on various aspects of truth. Some of them will be things that you have believed for a long time. Some of them may be things that you've resisted. My encouragement to you is, first of all, unblock God's tweets. Hear what God is actually saying. Learn how to test it. And then if there are things that you don't approve of, and there will be, that you put them before God and you say, God, I don't approve of that. I don't know what to do about it right now. But I will obey you and I will trust you as we move forward in this. Yeah, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this chance to come up. I ask that as we move forward in life, we would hear more clearly the things that we've resisted hearing, that we would submit our wills to you so that we would, we would know what you're actually saying, and that when we struggle with things, I ask that we would trust you and trust that when everything is taken care of, you will, uh, that we will agree at the end. Lord, I ask that we could encourage each other as we do this, that we could act gently but intentionally to help each other see what you're saying, that we could offer mercy and patience and kindness in places where we're resisting God, and that we could encourage each other with joy in the places where we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen.